Well, a very good evening and welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're very glad that you're joining us this evening. A Reason for Hope is a live broadcast guided by your questions on the Bible. That's right. Perhaps there's a passage of scripture that you'd like to delve further into, maybe uh, some verses that have confused you. Perhaps you're going through something in, in your life as you uh, walk as a Christian and would like a biblical perspective. We are here to delve into those things with you. Uh, today with me in the studio is Pastor Sean Richards and Senior Pastor Scott Richards. I'm going to call this team Father, Son, and the English One. What do you think? <laughs> well, that adds a little alliteration to yeah, it. Yeah, I thought that yeah. might kind of catch yeah. on, but how are you guys doing today? Oh, great. Yeah. Great. Yeah, lots, lots to talk about in the program today. Great, great. Yeah. These, these hours go so quickly, I've found, this, this week. They just kind of... Um, Fly by, but that's one of the things that you have to get used to, especially when you're doing live broadcasts like this. You know, the old saying really is true that time flies when you're in a blind panic. That's right. <laughs> when you're, you're, you know, as many of you know, Dave is uh, stepping into the role of uh, air traffic controller and host yeah. of the broadcast, which means he has to uh, keep alert on all kinds of uh, flashing buttons. He has a panel in front of him that looks somewhat reminiscent to me of. Uh, old uh, Star Trek, the original series, I know. Uh, the transporter room, I think. I have no uh, idea what it does, but yeah, it looks but, it sure looks good. But, uh, boy, going back to uh, my days uh, working in uh, radio and television, uh, getting thrown in sometimes uh, to having to uh, manage, say, for instance, a weekend newscast on KUAT, uh, I, I just remember it took me, like, weeks before the adrenaline rush finally wore off and I kind of got into the, the groove of all of that. So there, there's definitely a, a learning curve that's involved there. But uh, the, the other fun thing is, uh, man, when you've got that adrenaline going, it can really uh, cause uh, the time to fly pretty quickly too. And that's very true. Yeah, But it's sure been fun. Yeah. No complaints over here. We've been having a lot of fun this week and we'll continue to do so. And so I wanted to let you know how you can be part of the broadcast. If you're hearing us, then obviously you found a way. Um, but in case you want to um, jump on different platforms or share um, our broadcast here, um, Reason for Hope is a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. So you can see our broadcast at calvarychristianfellowship.com. Just follow the Watch Live tab right there. On Facebook, we're on Facebook as well, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We have an app, so you can download that to your mobile device and take us with you wherever you go. Um, so look in your app store for Calvary Christian Fellowship. Also on Roku and Apple TV, so you can watch us on your big screen, gather the family around. What more <laughs> would you like to do on a Friday night? <laughs> and do Marshmallows that. and Bible questions. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Sounds go. good. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Let's yeah. all do that. Um, and also on YouTube, we're at A Reason for Hope there on YouTube. You can email us your questions at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out, at gmail.com. If you're listening to us on Reach Radio or Radio Affiliate, you're listening to our last show pre-recorded, but you can, of course, still email us and we'll get to your questions on our next show. We're here Monday through Friday every week, 5 to 6. And... We are very glad to do so. Sean, would you like to pray for us as we delve into whatever the Lord will have for us this evening together? Absolutely. Yeah, Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be in your word among your people. And we pray also in your spirit. Quit my father and I to not only answer these questions with your word, but with your heart. Give those listening ears to hear your voice and us first and foremost to be able to properly receive and relate it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So Amen. where are we starting? Well, um, you know, there have been uh, some questions that have been sent my way by different people that I stay online with. Uh, by the way, if uh, you want to follow uh, our Twitter feed, uh, that's available for you at uh, scottr4h at twitter.com. That's how you distinguish me from the other Scott Richards who might be running around Twitter. <laughs> uh, Scott at scottr4h on Twitter. Uh, we try to you know, have a, a fairly uh, consistent presence there. Uh, you know, people say, well, why, you know, I mean, Twitter and these uh, things seem to be like so hostile and, and uh, combative. Well, you know, we really believe that uh, the, the modern agora, the, the marketplace where people would uh, gather and exchange ideas, like where uh, the Apostle Paul uh, argued with the, uh, the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers uh, in Athens, is social media. And uh, to me, 
there's a number of different platforms you could go on, but uh, probably one of the ones that is um, kind of the most hot button, I think, is Twitter. Um, you know, if you're going to be reaching out to people, then obviously you want to go where people need to be reached. So uh, we do have that uh, presence there, and you can follow along uh, there on that particular uh, platform. You can even get us uh, questions uh, for the broadcast uh, at uh, Scott R4H. We, we have a couple of features that uh, we do on the, the platform every day. One is uh, our Odyssey Files uh, uh, feature that we have there, and you'll have to follow along to kind of uh, capture that. Uh, we uh, try to uh, highlight, uh, say, uh, cultural things and events in the news that uh, have spiritual impact, spiritual importance, with a little bit of humor mixed in. So uh, I think you'll find uh, it to be uh, hopefully uh, refreshing, uh, a bit of a contrast from a lot of the content uh, that you see on Twitter. But uh, pray for us because, you know, we really do feel like it's almost a, uh, a missions field for us. Mm -hmm. Try to uh, reach out and get God's Word presented in a compelling way in that particular kind of environment. So uh, all of that to say, uh, got a, a couple of questions on our Twitter feed uh, that were direct uh, message to me. Uh, about uh, the comments that President Joe Biden made about our proximity to nuclear war. Uh, Joe Biden was uh, quoted as saying, we have not faced the prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is the president speaking. Vladimir Putin's not joking when he talks about the potential use of tactical nuclear weapons or biological or chemical weapons because his military is, you might say, significantly underperforming. I'm trying to figure out what is Putin's off-ramp? Where does he find a way out? Where does he find himself in a position that he not only doesn't lose face, but lose significant power in Russia? Well, uh, again, uh, this is a pretty provocative statement to make. There, there's no doubt about the fact that Vladimir Putin is a horrible dictator, that uh, the events going on in the Ukraine were an absolutely unprovoked power grab uh, that probably was prompted by the idea that NATO, and particularly the United States, was going through so much division that uh, we couldn't really get our act together to be able to oppose anything that he wanted to do. Now, obviously, uh, I'm not a military analyst, but uh, you don't have to be a weatherman to figure out which way the wind blows. Uh, Putin really felt that he could go in and do a shock and awe kind of treatment to the city of Kiev, and uh, take over and pretty much dominate the whole country. Uh, it didn't work out that way, obviously. Uh, the uh, Ukrainian people uh, dug in, and uh, the Russian uh, vaunted military really didn't live up to its reputation, got bogged down, and now it really seems like things are kind of grinding to uh, a slog, a standstill that's going on there. And uh, if you are an individual like Vladimir Putin, who has uh, kind of made your reputation for being a former KGB head and uh, you know very strong, uh, restoring Mother Russia to her place of dominance, uh, restoring Russia to the glories uh, of the Cold War under the Soviet Union and so forth. To see your, your forces being humiliated by a relatively small, uh, ill-equipped country like Ukraine is a real uh, loss of face for you. Uh, you know, some of the reports that we've read uh, have indicated that uh, the uh, Russians are actually having to borrow drone technology from the Iranians mm -hmm. in order to uh, prosecute some of their attacks and so on. So not a very good place to be. And uh, when you're an individual like Vladimir Putin who's going to hold on to power, uh, obviously when things are not going well, the saber rattling starts, uh, including both he and some of his proxies talking about using tactical nuclear weapon. Now, what is a tactical nuclear weapon? It's not like Tsar Bomba, you know, the, the famous Russian weapon, which was the largest nuclear device ever exploded. They're not going to try to blow up the whole country of the Ukraine, but their military, like our military, has nuclear weapons that can be used in a battlefield scenario uh, to great effect and with great devastation. Uh, there were reports that went on earlier in the week about the uh, Russians uh, even, uh, well, making some uh, semi-threatening comments in return to the United States, uh, among them uh, talking about a, a new Poseidon-level uh, torpedo they have, a nuclear-tipped uh, torpedo that would uh, carry 
a 50 to 100 megaton uh, nuclear device upon it and would be operated as a drone. You could drop one of these off anywhere, say, off of the coast of another country. You could have it settle to the bottom where it would be undetected, and then you could activate it uh, pretty much at uh, will and at whim. These things would be very difficult to detect and uh, would create what they would call a nuclear tsunami. Uh, they would go off and create a, a wave, uh, not just of, uh, of devastating effect physically, but also uh, so laced with uh, radioactivity uh, if you remember uh, the Fukushima disaster, uh, that would be the idea of the effect that one of these things could have. So, you know, both sides are kind of bringing out uh, this idea of, uh, of a nuclear standoff. There was a very disturbing report that went uh, down earlier this week that the Health and Human Services Department of the United States is uh, upping uh, their orders uh, through uh, the Amgen Corporation of uh, a sort of medication that would be used to, to treat people exposed to radiation poisoning that would come from fallout or different things along this line. They're drastically increasing the stocks. Now, I just think that may be just prudence. You know, if you hear the other side doing nuclear saber rattling, uh, you might want to make sure that you've got things covered in case somebody hits a button or, or things like this. But it's very interesting that he said we've not faced the process prospect of Armageddon since Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. I would differ with the president on that assessment in, in one really spectacular uh, exception to what he is talking about here. Uh, I remember in 1973, uh, we were in the midst of an energy crisis uh, because uh, the, uh, there was a uh, oil embargo that had been placed on the United States by the OPEC countries because we were supporting Israel during that time. During that time, the Yom Kippur War broke out. We have just gone through a celebration of Yom Kippur this year, but in 1973, during Yom Kippur, Israel was invaded on three different sides at once and caught flat-footed, believe it or not, by this particular attack. Uh, there, were, uh, 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 there, there have been uh, reports that uh, Golda Meir and her staff, including Moshe Dayan, the head of the Israeli Defense Forces, even contemplated using what they called the Samson option. You recall the story of Samson in the Book of Judges taking out more Philistines at the end of his life by destroying the Temple of Dagon than he did in his whole career as a judge. The Samson option was uh, Israel, uh, if they felt like they were going to be driven into the sea, the Jewish state was going to be wiped out, they would launch their nuclear weapons and take out the capitals of the foes that were attacking them. And so there was an actual conversation about that because things were so dire. Uh, however, the Lord uh, was definitely in control. It was a very scary time. I remember my brother and I at that time shared a bedroom. Uh, we had a little clock radio that would wake us up. And uh, because of the energy crisis, we didn't go on daylight savings time. So it got dark uh, really early, and it stayed dark really late. Uh, and uh, we woke up about 6 in the morning uh, to this uh, thing, and I'll never forget it. Uh, our, car, our little alarm clock was set to KFI in Los Angeles, and it said, uh, U.S. missiles on full nuclear alert. This is KFI News. We're like, what's going on here? Well, this was just after I'd become a Christian, and I just read uh, Hal Lindsey's late Great Planet Earth. So I'm thinking Armageddon at that particular point. I didn't understand all of the nuances that would go on in Bible prophecy. But what had happened was this. Israel responded to these attacks. In fact, God directly intervened in some amazing and miraculous ways as a result of these attacks. In one set of circumstances, the Syrians were pouring in through the area that we know today as the Golan Heights. Uh, their tank battalions were coming into Israel and literally were not receiving any kind of resistance whatsoever. Two things stopped them in their, their, their tracks. Number one, the Syrian commander, believe it or not, uh, found there was so little resistance by the Israelis he stopped the advance because he believed the Israelis were suckering him in to, an, to a, uh, an ambush. It was just too easy. If he had kept going, that, those tanks could have gone all the way to Tel Aviv. They would have divided the country in half. 
Israel would have been in desperate, desperate circumstances. But he stops them uh, in the area that we would know today as the Jezreel Valley, uh, the place where Armageddon will actually take place. They then uh, activated the, reactivated their tank battalions. Israel was de desperately trying to remobilize and get their tank battalions to meet the threat. There was one tank commander out there on patrol. And what he did was he would take his tank, he would drive to the top of a hill and fire on the Syrian forces, then go back down behind the hill, go you know about 200 yards to the other side, come up on the hill and fire again. The Syrians became convinced that there was a huge amount of Israeli tanks waiting for them there, and so they paused their advance again. This Zwiggy Brigade. Israel, what was that? The Zwiggy Brigade. Yeah, that, that was the, the actual name of it. This mm. one man who ran this tank was able to do this. And, and it wasn't just because this man was clever. I really believe it was the hand of God mm. uh, intervening and, and, and delivering his people. You're going to... Yeah, it's a, a literal page-by-page -page description given to us in Scripture when the enemies of Israel were going to be facing the Canaanites and the promises made to them. One of you will send to flight a hundred, and a hundred will send to flight a thousand. What was important to note is that there would not only be a superiority on the part of the people of Israel, not in military grade, not military experience, not military weapons. It would simply be because on a psychological and an environmental basis, God was on their side. He'd said, I'd send hornets, uh, nests right. to go ahead of you and to drive them out from their encampments. I said, I would cause confusion in the minds of your enemies, and this is all also something that would be repeated in the Ezekiel 38 and 39 invasion, which is what these are ultimately foreshadowings of. Yeah. When God is still intervening in the world today, as far as the well-being of his nation and the people of Israel, we see this continuing to be the trend that when missiles are fired by Hamas and they're probably going to hit a more efficable target, we see a huge beef or something. Yeah. yeah, huge gusts of wind knocking them off course and the Muslims who fired them saying the God of the Jews is intervening, which is apostasy if they were to admit such a thing in writing but i digress the funny thing in all of this is that we're seeing scripture fulfilled right. literally in front of us and have seen it in very very recent history the question isn't of course oh is the united states going to end up in some sort of limited nuclear war i'm sure joel rosenberg would hate being right all the time but when we're talking about the issue and concern of this and prophetic significance it's with matthew 24 in mind that one of the signs of the times would be wars and rumors of wars. But what is our response? Not to look down and uh, get under our desks as if that's going to accomplish anything. Sorry, duck and cover drills. No, it's the emphasis and point. Look up for your salvation draws near. We're, we've seen these things escalate and get pretty close and, in, and high in intensity. A lot of fear, the nations themselves, and I quote, failing themselves for fear, then dying down again. As Paul noted in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that the, well, not only the nations, but in particular those who don't know God, would have sudden destruction come upon them and there would be no escape. But we're not of the night. We're not the people who are caught off guard. We're in the day and need to take advantage of it with the time that we still have and with the resources that we've been given. While the people in Russia, the Orthodox uh, Christians living there, are doing their best to be of influence, and I am aware from people whose opinions in my life I trust that Vladimir Putin has good relations with the head of the Orthodox Church, uh, obviously isn't influencing his behavior too much, but a little bit of God's words worth a lot more than none. We also need to note that the people of the Ukraine are receiving enormous aid, not only in a financial sense from the United States, but in a spiritual sense from Christian missionaries who are also taking part in the support of this nation, which is rightfully so. Yeah, we were even contacted by a Calvary Chapel pastor who has a, a, a mission in Kiev. Yeah, and of course, these things are going to resolve themselves, hopefully, very nicely. But understand that the escalation, the center uh, cradle, I guess, if you will, of the future of the human race doesn't rest on Russia's lack of initiative or the United States' participation therein. Our eyes need to be on Israel. And as we've seen in history, God is still intervening. As we will see in history yet unwritten, God will intervene when Russia is dragged by Persia, modern-day Iran, into an invasion not unlike the Ukraine invasion, not just for the same means, but also the same motive. And the point still needs to be made. This is our base in confidence. It needs to be informed and in 
ultimately instructed and reacted to from the perspective that comes from God's Word. So, Yeah, and, uh, you know, I guess just bringing it back to all of that in the Yom Kippur War and, you know, again, uh, Joe Biden's remarks that uh, we haven't seen anything like this uh, since uh, the time of Kennedy. Actually, uh, we did. Back to that KFI news thing, U.S. Uh, forces on nuclear, highest nuclear alert. What had happened was uh, Israel had so turned the tide on the war, they had driven the Egyptians, especially to the south, back across the Suez, uh, back uh, across uh, the Suez Canal and into the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, is, uh, Egypt's main army was surrounded by Israel and was on the verge of being utterly destroyed. At that time, Leonid Brezhnev got on the phone to Richard Nixon and said, if uh, Israel destroys uh, the uh, the main Egyptian army in uh, the Sinai, uh, we are going to blow the Sixth Fleet out of the Mediterranean. And at that point, uh, we went to uh, the death con uh, rating that is just before the idea of launching nuclear weapons. It was that close at that time. Well, Israel backed off, allowed the Egyptians to be able to go back uh, after the uh, 73 war, they controlled the entire Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip and, and took the Golan Heights. So coming this close to absolute destruction uh, turned completely around, and Israel actually increased its total land area that it controlled by over one-third as a result of all of this. And so, you know, you really do see, you know, the, the hand of God in all of this. Uh, you know, are we anywhere near where we were during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Boy, I remember that when I was a little kid. Uh, mm. <laughs> uh, one of the things that happened in the midst of all of that was uh, my grandparents owned a hotel in Santa Monica. Uh, it was a large hotel on uh, Ocean Avenue down there. Uh, our parents took us uh, out of school and took us down to this hotel where we went inside the concrete reinforced parking structure because we were absolutely convinced that uh, nuclear exchange could happen at any time. And to make things worse, in Santa Monica, the air raid sirens malfunctioned and ran <laughs> like incoming was wow. happening at that point. Just I just rem I remember it was one of my earliest memories as a little kid, seeing how scared my parents were. Mm -hmm. And I had never seen my parents look that scared wow. in, in my life. My dad's philosophy, and he was an Air Force bomber pilot, who was trained to drop uh, nuclear weapons, he said his point of view was if a nuclear war starts, you want to be at ground zero because you don't want to be around for what's going to happen afterwards. Mm. So that was uh, a really frightening kind of a thing. And uh, when uh, it's very interesting in that same uh, article that talks where uh, Joe Biden made those particular uh, account uh, uh, remarks, uh, immediately after this, uh, the White House uh, reversed course and uh, said uh, the U.S. has no indications that Russia is preparing to use nuclear weapons. On Air Force One, the press sec secretary said there is no intelligence that has shaped the president's use of the term Armageddon discussing Putin and nuclear weapons at a fundraiser last night. Uh, again, there is no information that Russia is preparing imminently to use nuclear weapons. Uh, so, you know, politicians are going to politate, I guess, for lack of a better term. Mm. And we have to really be careful about this. And this is the reason I bring this up, is that uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, and Sean, you alluded to this, uh, there are those who look at uh, students of biblical prophecy and end times prophecy as kind of chicken littles. And there certainly is the chicken little wing of uh, Bible prophecy where people get clicks and hits and sell books by saying, oh, it's the end, it's the end, it's the end. It's the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, remember uh, Operation Desert Storm because it involved Iraq and Babylon was in Iraq. Uh, there were those who sold big time books saying, oh, well, this is it. This is uh, Armageddon. It's the end of the world. Uh, no, it wasn't. Uh, a careful student of biblical prophecy would indicate that this had really very little, if nothing, to do with uh, the prophecies that are made about the end-time scenario, particularly the seven years of tribulation that's going to come when the Antichrist uh, seizes power. 
More needed to happen than just Babylon being mentioned. But uh, people went kind of nuts on all of that. And, uh, you know, one of the things that a properly educated individual on biblical prophecy is going to have is a very steady and non-reactive perspective on human uh, events, especially uh, things that sound really frightening to the average individual. You were going to comment on that, Sean. No, and it's just keeping that all in perspective. The world's of the night. They don't know what's happening. We're of the day. We know not only the pan-trip perspective that it's all going to pan out in the end, but also have an informed approach towards these things that even if we're caught in the crossfire of some limited war, even if the world as we know it is remapped cartography in the L-Y sense. You can maybe translate my English later as the native speaker. The map's going to get redrawn. Yeah, (laughs) There's not a lot of room for that, given what we know about the end times, that there has to be enough of a world left for the Antichrist to rule from, enough of a world for Israel to be able to function from within, and of course, enough confidence for us to understand that the biggest and the most interesting aspect of biblical prophecy isn't necessarily our capacity to destroy ourselves, but our wanton rebellion against God. We'll be good, as the news media is always, in taking advantage of and capitalizing on our capacity to make ourselves afraid and in a panic over things that don't actually merit that kind of response. I won't mention anything specifically because YouTube will take us off the air, but the point being made is just this. Our eyes need to be on what our Lord has promised, and that's not that you're going to end up in a nuclear fireball. It's that you're going to be with me in the air. Whether that's when he comes for us or we go to him, that's our ongoing perspective. Yeah, and uh, you know when people you know make statements like this, including the President of the United States, throwing around the term Armageddon and so on, and people start getting freaked out. And boy, some of the direct messages that I got, people were freaked out, mm. right? They were like, is this it? You know, I just, is Joe Biden and, and all this stuff. You know, I just have a word of exhortation for you out there, and hopefully it's comforting as well. Uh, man, when you see this sort of thing, bookmark in your Bible, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And when these things begin to happen, just sit down and read this slowly and ask the Lord to minister to you through his spirit, through his word. Uh, Paul writing there says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourself know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety... Then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Now, notice it doesn't say when people are running around pulling their hair out like uh, Chicken Little, that's when it's... No, it's when there's peace and safety. Mm. That's when you've really got to pay attention because the Lord could come for his people at the event called the rapture, particularly in a season like that. It says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so this day overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. In other words, God wants us to know what's going on in this world. He wants us to know the signs of the times. He wants us to look up when these things begin to happen because your salvation draws near. But he wants us to do it in a way that is sober, that is not crazy, that is not hysterical. Uh, Notice it says, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you're doing. One last thing I'll say about this, and, and again, forgive me for going on the soapbox, but kind of motivated by some of the things that I received earlier. Uh, you know, the purpose of prophecy for the believer is twofold, comfort and edification. In other words, we're comforted because we know where we're going. We're comforted because we know how it all turns out. People ask me, what do you think the world's coming to? I'll say an end, at least under current management. But understand something, that the comfort of knowing that God has a purpose and a plan and that God is on the throne, that all things are happening according to his sovereign will as he has revealed to us 
through his prophets, as he's revealed to us through scripture like the book of Revelation, uh, we can comfort each other and edify one another. What does it mean to edify? Edifying carries the idea of building on a foundation. If you have a foundation of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the more you study Bible prophecy, the more you look into these things, the more you can build on that foundation of faith and apply it to even the most contemporary events that we see in this world. And that way, boy, I'll tell you, when I fire up the old computer in the morning and uh, take a look at the events of the day, you know, it can be a very exciting thing because even if it's really dire and, uh, you know, again, do you think Armageddon's coming and all this other stuff? Hey, to me, all that means is just as Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, when you see these things begin to happen, look up. Don't look down. <laughs> Don't go hysterical. Look up for your salvation draws near. You know, we've had an extended monsoon season mm-hmm. here in uh, in Tucson this year. We, we got gully washed uh, just a few minutes before uh, airtime here. But one of the things I love about the monsoon season is these majestic thunderclouds build up over the Catalina Mountains here. And when I see those thunderclouds, one thing the Lord has just really uh, laid on my heart is uh, thinking we're going to be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, it, you know, and sometimes I look at those clouds and go, I wonder, I wonder if it's going to be like that. I wonder if I'm going to be standing on that cloud with the Lord before too long. Now, it hasn't happened yet, but boy, talk about a great way to get your mind off all the vain things mm-hmm. that charm us most and all the irritants and, and uh, things that really don't amount to a hill of beans that can distract us. Look up and realize Jesus is coming soon. Boy, it really provides a touchstone for us to invest in things that really matter and uh, not to get caught up so much in the things that don't. So, and sermonette. So. All right. Um, <laughs> Amen to that. Got a, we, two questions, uh, two people, same topic, who wanted to know the difference between the Lamb's Book of Life and the Book of Life proper, and how we would teach if someone thought they were two different books. The short answer is yes, they're the same book. Um, could you hand me your phone real quick? I'll do a little uh, active illustration here. For those of you listening, uh, just follow along with me. I'm holding two phones here. One is Sean's phone. The other is Pastor Scott's phone. Now, Now, if we're going to ask which one's the phone, it would be both, one and the same. If I were to say, in what way would they be different, people would say, oh, it's the Lamb's Book of Life and the Book of Life. The difference in ownership would be there being a difference between what's in them. Otherwise, they'd be the same book, regardless of who's associated with it. So, for example, if I'm to look in Pastor Scott's phone, I would see pictures of my sister and my mother and maybe the cats that we're associated with from time to time. (laughs) If you were to look in my phone, you see mostly foil sculptures and maybe a few games. That's about it. So the substance of what's in them would note there being a difference between the two books. I would make the argument that they are the same book because all the information we're given within them is either not mentioned or mentioned to the same effect. And let's work backwards from the time that it's referred to as the Lamb's Book of Life. This is in reference to those who are in the Holy City. Uh, This is Revelation chapter 21, the last verse of the chapter, verse 27. There shall by no means enter in it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So if we're going to say the Lamb's Book of Life is identified, the first and most important detail is it has names written in them who are welcomed into the holy city. And the holy city is given further detail in the chapter that follows, as well as the chapter that just concluded as the presence of God. So those who are in heaven. We can also note the book of life being mentioned just in broad strokes and in general, not in those who are welcomed into the holy city, but those who are excluded from it. This is Revelation chapter 20 and verse, let's go to... Let's go to verse, uh, well, I guess 14 is uh, sufficient. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So those subject to the second death, death in a biblical sense, meaning separation, eternal separation from God in your consciousness, that is what's being referred to. The Lamb's book of life has those who are welcomed into the holy city. The book of life, just proper, are those who are not welcomed into the holy city, right? Right. No, it's referring to what? Those not written in the book of life. 
So those who would be written in the book of life would be welcomed into the holy city. We can do a little reductionism there. And if you need further clarification again, Revelation 13 kind of uses it in a different way grammatically. It says in verse 8, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, that is the beast from the sea, the Antichrist, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So noting this point, those who aren't belonging to Jesus, who aren't going to heaven, they'll buy into this guy. So note all the details were given about this. The book of life is checked, and if names aren't written in it, they're not in heaven. The book of life mentions names, and those are those who are welcomed into the holy city, the new creation. So if their names were in it, they'd be in the holy city. If their names were not in it, they'd worship the Antichrist or have been cast into the lake of fire, note in proper order. If we want to go to the Old Testament, we'd go to Exodus uh, I believe, yeah, 32 yeah. and verse 32. I yes. remember that one. It's yes. a repeat where Moses doesn't mention it as the book of the Lamb, but the book of remembrance in regards to having a relationship with God. Do not cut these people off, blot my name out from the book of your remembrance. So note all the details, Lynn and Monica. The point of emphasis in the distinction is nil because what they negate is what's affirmed, and what's affirmed is also negated. The substance of what's in them aren't different. So I would say they're the same thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, there's an interesting scripture in uh, Revelation chapter 3. Jesus dealing with the church at Sardis said a name they were alive, but they were actually dead. Uh, He had this promise for those who weren't taken down by the deadness of this church. In verse 5, he said, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now notice the term book of life is used there in the book of Revelation. Uh, We also uh, see that there is this idea of being blotted out. Uh, One other detail about the book of life that I think is kind of interesting uh, is that since in 2 Peter chapter 3 in verse 10, we're told God's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, verses 8 and following of, of that particular passage, God's bias is that all would come to know him. Uh, because of that, some people believe that in the book of life, every person who is now living has their name in that particular book until such time as they die without putting their faith in Jesus. At that moment, their name is blotted out of the book. And that ties into what you mentioned at the uh, end of things in the book of Revelation, where they saw they took a look at the books and whoever's name wasn't there in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. Uh, ended up uh, separated from God forever. They were blotted out. But it just says the book of life, not the Lamb's book of life. Yeah. So (laughs) it would be mincing irrelevant details. Let us know if that helps you out, if that was a clear illustration. Yeah, thank you, Monica, for that question and being part of our our broadcast here. We have a question from S.A. Eggleton. Can someone deny things like the flood, the Tower of Babel, or the creation as described in the Bible and still be saved. I know many Christians who do this. You want to take it or should I? We can have it up. There are people who have legitimate relationships with God who have made very bold compromises concerning the first 10 chapters of the book of Genesis, Mm -hmm. maybe 11, I guess, now too. But when it comes to these compromises, it doesn't deny the claim that Jesus died and rose from the uh, from the dead to affirm that he was Lord. It would just be an example of very uh, poor biblical literacy, or at least uh, poor, I won't use that word on the air, uh, basically not willing to stand up for your faith in the face of controversy and opposition and the kind of, I guess, uh, I wouldn't even say filibustering, but the sort of bottlenecking of information that's available in our world today, that people who do research that would affirm a biblical flood are kicked out of those sort of fields, whereas information that affirms macroevolution, abiogenesis through means of natural selection are given full support even when their work is based and predicated on fraud. And we can give examples of this, but for the sake of time and for the sake of the relevance of the question, the point being made is this. When those sort of compromises are made, they aren't gospel issues. There's certainly authority of scripture questions, but they won't be as consistent as they ought to be in throwing out the first book of the Bible 
when the first books of the New Testament affirm those things constantly. Right. They make these compromises not because the passages are unclear, but because their careers or their social networks, or even with the best of intentions, people like Frank Turek would make these compromises because they're speaking to atheists who will go on these rabbit trails, and he finds it's more productive in witnessing to dovetail beyond them and get back to the resurrection of Jesus. You know what, God bless him for the effort, but I prefer if uh, given the choice between sacrificing Scripture or sacrificing my witness, I choose neither. I would rather uphold on Scripture and let them walk away if they want to. Yeah. But um, now if they want to compromise on those grounds, I wouldn't say they're not saved. I'd just say they're inconsistent. You could be a poorly informed Christian and still be a Christian, even if you're very much informed and very much used in other areas. Yeah, I always defer back to what I call the thief on the cross principle. Uh, here was a guy who obviously didn't have all his theological uh, T's crossed and I's dotted. Uh, all he knew was uh, that this Jesus was a pretty extraordinary individual. Mm. Uh, you know, at the beginning, he and the other thief were casting aspersions at Jesus, but it was probably seen how Jesus dealt with the horrors uh, of the cross and what he went through and the sky turning dark and so on, and, you know, that probably led him to understand who Jesus was. And you can probably get an idea that there was some background there, some some knowledge, the scuttlebutt about what was going on uh, regarding Jesus there. But, you know, he turns to Jesus and he, he says this. First he says to the other thief, you know, don't you even fear God when you're dying? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man's done nothing wrong. And he looks at Jesus and said, uh, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, that's the only theological statement that he made. He hmm. first acknowledged that he was a sinner, that he was getting exactly what he deserved, but he also acknowledged that Jesus could do something about his sinful state and the ultimate judgment that he was going to face after death. He put those two things together, and he simply asked Jesus to remember him when he came into the kingdom. Jesus' response is really telling. You know, look at them and say, well, we got to kind of go down your theology and figure out, you know, where you stand on predestination and free will and these different issues. No, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, this day you'll be with me in paradise. So, you know, there are those that come out of the world and come out of a very worldly mindset. I certainly was one uh, that bring a lot of baggage with you into the Christian life. Uh, you know, I've, it took me a while to figure out that evolution just wasn't true, you know. At first, I which thought, one? <laughs> I thought, well, you know, I mean, uh, I guess God could have used evolution. That was my first thought mm -hmm. as a brand new Christian because I'd been raised on Nat Geo programs and PBS specials, and I just assumed that evolution was a fact. But the more I looked into it, the more I found that evolutionism doesn't stand up under examination. That it is more philosophical than scientific. That it's a lens at looking at things, not the thing itself. Um, my attitude changed on all of that. And the more acquainted I got with the Scripture, the more grounded I got in the Scripture, the more I discovered that a biblical worldview uh, not only couldn't be harmonized with evolutionism, uh, but it made a lot more sense uh, as far as understanding this world to look at it through the lens of uh, the uh, creation of the world that we see in the book of Genesis. The bottom line for me is this, you know, Carl Sagan said the cosmos is all there is, all there was, or all that ever will be. Uh, but Carl Sagan is a moldering in the grave. Jesus Christ said that uh, there was a creation, that he is, the, in fact, the creator. You know, that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female, affirming Adam and Eve as historical figures, right. the creation of them as a historical event, and the book of Genesis to be taken literally and applied in the context of very practical things like marriage. So, you know, Carl Sagan, no disrespect intended, is a moldering in the grave. But Jesus rose from the dead. So I'm going to take his word on these things that I wasn't around to see, you weren't around to see, scientists weren't around to see, uh, but he claimed to have been there. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, you know, again, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Uh, nothing was created that he himself didn't create. So I tend to want to take his point of view on these particular subjects. And having said that, that's a process. And I think you can be a baby Christian, as mm -hmm. uh, some people are, 
and uh, you're, you're not on solid food yet. You're just still trying to make heads or tails out of this new relationship with God that you have and running up to people and saying, man, I think I found something in the Bible nobody's ever seen before. See, it says right here, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And, you know, you, you, you see these new believers and you go, oh, they're so cute. They're just so excited. Nobody ever seen that before. And, you know, I, and I had those moments, obviously. But the, the bottom line is there, there, there can be areas to grow. Now, if you have grown, if you are a biblically literate Christian and you still reject or write off as myths things like Noah's flood or the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, uh, you know, that's getting on pretty shaky ground inconsistent and a compromise on the authority of Scripture, which is a non-negotiable. But that doesn't mean that they throw out the entire concept altogether. Right. There are people whose names I wouldn't mention who I'd say, you know, given the fact you've been at this for a while and the reasons you yourself explain why you're throwing these things out, I have concerns. But at the same time, I'd say, because you affirm the resurrection of Jesus, I'll let him determine your heart in this. Yeah, and, then and, the, and when we stand before the Lord someday... Uh, we're going to give an account of our lives. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that no one can lay any other foundation than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But how we build on it is the issue. Some people build with wood, hay, and stubble, others with gold, silver, and precious stones. We stand before God in his presence. Everything that is not of God, everything that is not permanent and eternal is going to be consumed. But if we build on that foundation with things that are eternal, like the Word of God endures forever, uh, then we're going to receive a reward at that time. I think those that try to amalgamate their Christian faith with worldly concepts are going to see a lot of that go up in smoke. Uh, I don't think it's a question of them not going into heaven, but I think they're going to see that a lot of things they invested their time, talent, and treasure into just... Mm more waste. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, there's a few more questions we want to get into that have some time due to them. So let's okay. let's continue, but yeah, let us know if that answered the question. Thank you for that question. We appreciate being part of the broadcast. I hope that helps you out. We have a question from uh, from Dwayne. Hey, Dwayne, thank you for joining us. Um, can Jehovah's Witness, can a Jehovah's Witness be a good person even though they have bad ideas? I'll give the short answer. There is no good person, and you guys can give the long answer. (laughs) They can be moral people, but that doesn't mean that they're following Jesus. The confusion is, oh, if they're a good person, that means they're saved. Not at all. In fact, there are moral people who are atheists, moral people who are Buddhists. The fact that they are accidentally modeling the nature and character of God only shows the image of God is still in them. But the fact that they are proactively in their lifestyles and their doctrine and in their ultimate contribution to this world, shaking their fist in the face of the one who gave his life for them, that is important. That is not an issue that we say, well, they're just such a moral guy, they're going to go to the telestial level of glory, like Mormons claim. Jehovah's Witnesses fundamentally deny who Jesus is, and a fake Jesus can't save you. I can make any doctrinal statements and maybe even a few jokes on the matter, but that would be the most simple way to put it. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. You know, when we talk about uh, someone is such a good person, the thing we have to remember is we're immediately uh, judging that person on the horizontal. We're, we're kind of getting into the idea that uh, all of us are basically good people and, and we want to do the right thing. And some people do things that are, are more notable uh, in a moral and a personal sense than others. But here's the problem. That still can't bridge the gap between you and a holy God because no matter how many great things you do, morally. It doesn't make up for all the things that you can't do uh, spiritually to make yourself acceptable to God. You can't atone for your sin, for instance, by rescuing someone from a burning building. The Bible doesn't say that that's the way sin is dealt with. Is it commendable that someone rescues, uh, say, a child from a burning building? Sure. You know, that's great. Glad they did it. But it has nothing to do with their spiritual relationship with God has nothing to do with their spiritual destiny. We have to see that these things are in different categories. You know, it doesn't say that we sit around with our arms folded and sneer at people and go, I don't care that guy rescued a child from a burning building. Oh, they're still a wicked, vile sinner. No, if someone rescues someone from a burning building, I'll be right there to give them a high five and take them out to lunch. But it doesn't mean they're going to heaven. That's a separate issue. Hopefully, I'd take them out to lunch and say, man, you did such a wonderful thing. Did you know that Jesus 
did something similar for you. He rescued you from the eternal fire, and he died for you on the cross. And who knows, maybe that person would come to know the Lord. Yeah, and if you want an uh, explanation of this on a more philosophical bent, look up The Moral Argument by William Lane Craig, and he explains it with uh, fun little cartoons and animation, clarifying the difference. We don't say that people who don't know God can't be good. We're saying that there can't be a concept like good apart from God. And the only good that's going to make the difference in eternity isn't what you did with your life, it's what you did with your soul, if, whether you chose to reject Jesus with it or receive him through it. Yeah, so, you know, J. Vernon McGee had a great illustration about this that, that has always helped me. He says, try to imagine three people meeting on the end of a pier in San Pedro Harbor in Los Angeles. Out in the distance, you see Catalina Island, 26 miles away. Uh, the first person is a uh, fall-down drunk. And the fall-down drunk looks at the other two and says, you know, I think I can jump all the way to Catalina Island. And so he staggers down, hits the edge of the rail, makes it three feet and falls in the water. Well, the other person is a respected local businessman. He looks at the drunk and goes, well, I think I can do better than that. So he gets a running start and uh, makes it maybe 15 feet, still falls in the water. The third person there is a world-class long jumper, gold medal winner in the Olympics, and says, oh, these people are amateurs. Let me show you what I've got. Jumps 30 feet beyond the pier, still falls in the water. Why? Because we can't bridge the gap between San Pedro and Catalina based on human strength. Even more so, we can't bridge the gap spiritually between a holy God and us as fallen sinful people. We simply do not have that capability. That's why Christianity is so different from the world and world religions. World religions say, well, you know, follow our practices and you can jump farther off that pier. Uh, but uh, what Christianity says is you'll never make it. You don't have what it takes. You can't possibly do that. But here's the good news. God reached down to you and did for you what you could never do for yourself. Bridge that gap by becoming a man, dying on a cruel Roman cross to pay the price for your sins. And because of that, Jesus is the one who bridges that gap. There's one God and one mediator between God and man. We are told the man, Christ Jesus, because he was fully man, he could die in our place because he was fully God, he could offer a sacrifice of eternal value that can take uh, us and bridge the, the greatest gap in the universe, the distance between holy God and fallen sinful man, not by human effort, but by the forgiveness and grace of God. Amen. Dwayne, thank you for that question and being part of our broadcast today. We have about five minutes left here. What's yeah, that, Sean? Um, three questions from Valerie we want to get to before we have to sign off. Yeah, uh, do you want me to read those out? Yeah, go ahead. Valerie, welcome. Thank you for being part of the show here. It's regarding Mark uh, 13, 21 through, and 22 through 22, and Matthew 24, 23 uh, through 24. How are we to not be deceived? Is it only because Christ will come from the skies and we will be able to see it? What if we miss it? How will we then not be deceived? Now, pay careful attention to verses 24 through 25. For false Christs and false prophets will rise, show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But see, I have told you beforehand. What's the significance of Jesus saying, my words will make it so that you won't believe their words? Because to spot a lie, you have to know the real deal. And Mark is a reiteration of the same point. If you know Jesus, you'll know the difference between the fake Jesus and the real one. Right. If you don't know Jesus, if you're in the Jehovah's Witness category and some guy comes along and says, I'm the manifestation of the Archangel Michael, they'll buy it because that's what they've been believing. But if you know the real Jesus, if you've right. heard his words, I have told you beforehand, you won't be caught in it. It's not in reference to the apocalypse. It is spoken in that context, but it's a reference to the signs that will be anticipating that time that false Christ will come and rise up and deceive many. But these are the beginning of sorrows. Yeah, and, and, and the bottom line in, in all of this, Valerie, how will you not be deceived? Here it is in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, speaking about the ultimate deceiver, the Antichrist himself is going to mm -hmm. lead the whole world astray to think that he is uh, God to be worshipped. Uh, we're told the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Now catch this because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now, if you don't want to be deceived, here's the prescription. Receive the love of the truth. Love God's word. Be in God's word. Know it so well that you can spot a counterfeit a mile away. You know, I used to 
Uh, I worked for Security Pacific Bank at one point, and the FBI would come out periodically and do seminars on counterfeiting. And uh, the, the FBI agent said, you know, it's really amazing. The best people to spot counterfeiting we have found are bank tellers because they are so intimately acquainted with what currency is really like. They recognize the feel, the look, you know, the, 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 the whole bit. Instinctively, they can pick out a fake dollar bill because it just doesn't match up to that which they're so familiar with. Uh, and, and so the, the best way to spot a counterfeit is not to study counterfeits or worry about counterfeits. The best way to spot a counterfeit is to become so familiar with the real deal, the counterfeit stands out like a sore thumb. All right. And then uh, the last one before we have to sign off is, uh, why did Jesus say, Mark 13, 30, did many generations pass? What's the misunderstanding here? The word generation. Uh, let me read the passage. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all of these things take place. Now, let's just work in alternatives. Either Jesus meant generation in the sense of a period of time between a person's birth and death right. or their parents in reference to it you can refer to a lifespan of people this general age this time period or it could just mean the generations that have followed from a particular ancestor now the first two set a period of time the third just identifies someone's heritage their genus so what's the Non nonsensical interpretation of this passage. Since there's a long period of time, more than one generation, time-wise, from Jesus making these statements and all these things being fulfilled, we have to take the alternative explanation as to not make nonsense of the passage. And that's what? He's not referring to generation as in, oh, 70 years or 80 if he has strength. It's in reference to this point exactly. The Jewish people will not pass away. The people he was speaking to, their generations will not pass away till every promise made to them, Daniel 9.24 style, have been fulfilled. Yeah, and so it's not an error on Jesus' part. Another point of view is that when these signs begin to happen, uh, it's going to go down quickly. It's not going to take uh, centuries for all of the events that Jesus speaks of uh, leading up to his return to happen. Amen. So, yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time. Have a wonderful weekend. We'd love to connect with you at questionsforhope at gmail.com or visit our website at calvarychristianfellowship.com. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.